0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Rob Wolf. I'm delighted to be back with another episode of New Books in Science Fiction. This is the Spontaneous Anthropomorphic Event Edition. Joining me today is Jasper Ford, an author who can do that wonderful thing that so few can do well, make you laugh hard, think hard, and cry hard all at the same time. His new book, The Constant Rabbit, came out in Great Britain a few months ago and became available in the U.S. at the end of September. Jasper spent 20 years in the film business before debuting on the New York Times bestseller list with The Air Affair, as in Jane Eyre, in 2001, and since then has written well over a dozen novels. And he's joining me now over Skype from his home in Wales, in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the pod.
0: Well, thank you very much. Good to be here.
1: Uh, let me just ask how things are today in lovely Wales.
0: Well, from a looking out of my window point of view, it is bright, it is sunny, there is a blue sky, it's very pleasant, it's nice and warm, it's a little sort of late, late summer's day, so it's it's actually very pleasant.
1: Well, that's wonderful. I, I was in Wales a couple times, and... Uh, I imagine it's very green outside your window.
0: Yeah, we, we, we're sort of, we have the green that um, Ireland didn't want, you know, that's because we, we kind of get the rain that Ireland didn't want, you know, so, so we send, so when in, you're in England, if you're in England, and you're being rained upon, you're getting the rain, the really rubbish rain that Wales and Ireland didn't want. And because Ireland is like this super green um, the Emerald Isle, we think that perhaps we've got the green maybe that, that you know, that maybe Ireland didn't want or, or, or they had too much of it and they decided let less 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 so they sent some to us.
1: Well, just my impression of Wales was just of that very picturesque countryside with the crumbling fences everywhere and the beautiful hills. And...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that we have that Wales, this is this is a little-known Wales fact, is we have more castles per square mile than any other nation on Earth. How about that?
1: That's amazing. Does that mean you also have more princes and baronesses and such per
0: square <laughs> well, mile? Well, I suppose suppose it we we might have done i mean if you add them all up uh but unfortunately you know they, they don't exist now we uh, i actually live inside a a bailey which is the old you know the wall that goes round a, um, a castle a, a norman modern bailey so in my back garden there's this huge mound that was built around 1080 but no one knows why but i mean that's how close i am to the castle i'm literally in one right now but it's it's not like you know turrets and you know sort of princesses in wimples and stuff like that it's just like intriguing grassy mounds
1: and you know. and what's in the mound
0: well nothing i don't i think it's just earth and you can't look in it because if you do that's it's like scheduled ancient monument and and you'll get a, an almighty slap on the wrist but it's it's not likely there's going to be anything in it
1: isn't that how they found richard iii's remains they were in a in a uh, parking yeah. lot or something they were digging yeah, around
0: they, yeah, they went into a parking lot. Yeah, they thought of knew they knew he was there because the parking lot was on the site of a church where they knew he was buried, um, and it, they just dug down and they just happened to find him almost straight away, which is pretty cool. Um, but no, but you know, I think they know where most of the kings are now, and I don't think there's got one in my backyard, sadly.
1: Well, I'm glad <laughs> we got off to talking about <laughs> random things because I was going to say one of the challenges of interviewing you is that. You've posted on your website the answers to, it looks like a decade's worth of questions that you've been asked, and so that left oh, me terrified uh, that I'll yeah. I'll have nothing original to ask you.
0: No, 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 don't you worry. That is like the first decade. I gave up. After I got to about eight 900 questions, I just gave up, and and I think the last question was at least 10 years ago. So lots of new questions you can ask, especially about the new book, which there are no questions and answers posted.
1: Excellent. Right. Exactly. So this is a new book and it came out, I guess, a few months ago in the UK and it'll be out. We're recording now mid-September, but it'll be out at the end of September and the episode's supposed to air just at the beginning of October. So it'll be, everyone will be able to get it, but uh, it's not out yet as we speak. As I'm sure you noticed, I lifted the name of the episode, The Spontaneous Anthropomorphic Event, from your book, and I thought that would be a good place to start. Mm. Can you explain to our listeners what The Spontaneous Anthropomorphic Event is?
0: Right. <laughs> How to explain? Uh, yes. Deep breath. Um, okay. So the conceit of my book is that in in 1968 there was this spontaneous anthropomorphic event where 18 rabbits in the UK suddenly became human-like you know they were six foot tall they could walk they could talk they had reason Um, they could drive cars you know they like going to the cinema eating out all that kind of stuff and and initially everyone went wow that's fantastic that's amazing welcome celebration how did this happen we don't know it's still unexplained and then as the years go by the suspicion changes to sort of Uh, suspicion changes to fear and after that hatred. And there are now uh, 1.2 million rabbits in the UK and the ruling United Kingdom anti-rabbit party, which seems to have gained power on a sort of anti-rabbit rhetoric, have decided that the the rabbits need to be rehomed in Wales in one vast mega warren, um, as opposed to their little individual Colonies, and my protagonist, whose name is uh, Peter Knox, works for the Rabbit Compliance Task Force, which, as you might imagine, is not very friendly towards rabbits. And um, and everything's sort of going all right, but then uh, some rabbits move into. Uh, into the village in which he lives and uh, and of course all the villagers uh, say well you know I think I think they should leave really because you know they breathe and they burrow and you know all that vegan nonsense you know but unfortunately it's slightly complicated because Mrs Rabbit Connie is actually an old sort of acquaintance of his from university so they kind of get talking and that's kind of where the the whole thing uh, the whole thing kicks off. And, and along with
1: being anthropomorphized intellectually, she's got uh, quite a human feminine figure too, because he's quite drawn to her. And I don't think it's just because she's a big rabbit. There's something kind of sexy with her as well.
0: Yeah, there is. I mean, this is, um, this all sort of, um, it kind of, it's, it's a book that is an odd one because it's clearly it's allegorical and it's kind of, it's kind of very serious. And interesting about, by, by, by telling stories which are allegorical is you can you can tell a story that's about something but isn't about something and you can be very serious but you can always use uh, you can use comedy in a in a big way to sort of say some things which are quite serious and and I kind of like the idea that um that Connie Rabbit is actually kind of very sexualized because uh because oddly enough she's kind of based on the the Cadbury's uh, caramel bunny Uh, which was uh, used in the 80s to sell chocolate. And it was this sort of very sort of over-sexualized sort of uh, um, animated rabbit. And it struck me as just ludicrous that you would you would use that, you know, to to sell chocolate. And rabbits are used a lot, actually, when it comes to to advertising. And we we make them human like, if you imagine, you know, um, there's uh, Thumper and Roger Rabbit and Beatrix Potter. And we, we humanize them in this way that makes them very cute and cuddly and fun and everything. But in reality, you know, we have different words. We, we describe them as a pest, plague and vermin, and they have to be destroyed in all manner of horrible ways. So there's a very sort of strange relationship uh, we have with rabbits. And I think making making Connie Rabbit into this kind of very attractive An alluring figure was just kind of me mucking around with this strange thing that humans do when they want to use these these creatures to do specific things for them like sell chocolate bit of a long um, answer but uh, that's kind of where the whole Connie rabbit being uh, looking uh, rather human-like and um, curvy comes from curvy and in bikinis (laughs) in bikinis (laughs) yes yeah, so the people the people who don't like her there, who don't well don't want the rabbits there, you know, going, you know, though we don't want rabbits here, you know, terrible, awful, awful creatures, but they're they're stopping and staring at Connie in her bikini as she's um as she's sitting in the garden. So there's this sort of, you know, strange hypocritical duality <laughs> about humans. Humans do not come out very well in this book, I'm sorry to say, if you have any humans listening now they may feel a little bit defamed by it. So I should, we should actually put that warning in. So, so any, any, any non-humans, just carry on listening. But any humans, um, yeah, just, just be aware.
1: It's hard to know from the statistics, the podcast statistics, which anthropomorphized animals are actually subscribers, but that's a good point.
0: Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I, I think you should send out a little mail shot and say, you know, like, who's a badger? You know who's a raccoon? I, I want to know because uh, you know I think you could be missing something on the, you know, the raccoon demographic or badger. Maybe you should have more about sort of rooting around in dustbins, you know, just just sort of appeal more to the raccoon market.
1: Absolutely, that's one of the few fauna we have in New York City. You, along with rats, are uh, raccoons <laughs> and pigeons. Oh no! So I was going to ask you, but I'm not. Let's. I'm going to hold off a little bit on on how okay. hard it is to be funny and serious at the same time, because I wanted to delve a little bit into some of the serious themes mm. that the book addresses. And I thought maybe we could do that talking a little bit more about Peter Knox, who's the first person narrator. And the book is full of, I hope I say this right, laporaphobics, which mm. is the word for... Yeah. Rabbit phobes, I guess, or rabbit haters, and yeah. and what you just said, you know, that the haters think of rabbits as dirty and inferior, and I mean, basically, as an allegory, I mean, they they look at rabbits the way any hate group thinks about the the group that it wants to turn into, the other, mm. and Peter works, as you said, for the rabbit compliance task force, and yet he says, I I, I have nothing against rabbits. I'm not lapar. Phobic, you know. Connie was someone he still thinks about from his days at university, and and yet he works for this organization that I don't know. I was thinking it's a bit like working for the SS during the Nazi era, and then professing not to have any hatred of Jews. Like I'm, I, you know, I I don't have any personal animus. So what's going mm. on with Peter?
0: Well, I mean, it's. I think that's it. I mean, Peter is. Uh, I like Peter as a protagonist. He he has lots of really interesting challenges. Somebody did a review, and they they, they said that he was a um, spineless but very pleasant, and and I think that's probably very close to to who he is. He's someone who hasn't given a great deal of thought to to what he's actually doing, and he doesn't see the issue. He doesn't see the problem with you know that. You know these rabbits are okay, but the work I'm doing is a problem. So he is he is utterly, utterly complicit in in the the evils that this regime is doing, but he somehow has this kind of intellectual gymnastics to try and draw him away from any sense of responsibility. And and I think this has happened. This happens a lot with humans, uh, and not perhaps in the extreme ones that you mentioned. Although, yeah that definitely happened is that it happens on a very small scale as well. And and I think, you know, the, the book is hoping uh, to, to say right. to people, look, you can't look at the hate groups and say these people are, you know, they're the ones that hate groups. I'm nothing like them. And in fact, perhaps what you be, should be thinking of is maybe I am complicit and in what ways could I possibly be so so he in a, in a strange way is is very kind of if you can say mildly complicit in this kind of you know evil doing but really needs to ask himself some very particular questions which I, I hope he does actually you know during the course of the book but it, it's quite a fun character to write someone who is who is not a heroic person someone who, who ends up at the book, well, I won't give any spoilers, but who, who, who doesn't go on at this massive arc where he becomes the savior of all the universe and everything else. He's just somebody who becomes, perhaps he knows a little bit more at the end of the book.
1: The way that the, the haters treat and think of the rabbits, there's this organization, one of the hate groups is called Two Legs, good. Yeah. Which just kind of reminded me of uh, our first lady's be best. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's sort of like the grammar might be a little off there, but they and the government's attempts sort of echo, I think, all the kind of horrible ways that people have treated people over the years. You know, they segregate the rabbits. It's like an apartheid and there's anti, I don't know if they're called anti-miscegenation laws when they involve inter species. But you know, it reminds you of that, that they can't have, mm. uh, you know, uh, it's illegal for them to have uh, relationships, humans and the rabbits. And so it brings to mind, you know, Jim Crow mm. South and Nazis and just, you know, I mean, all the horrible things. So I just wondered if you had something specific that inspired you. There's also, uh, you know, Brexit is referred to as, uh, I'm not
0: sure how to say it, ra- rab-sit? rab Rab it. Yeah, it's getting rid of the right. rabbits. It's called Rabzit. Yeah, I mean, I think really there's when it comes to um, the sort of demonizing of the minority other, you know, there's just so much to draw on. And that is kind of worrying all in itself. You, you don't even need to go into any specific place in the world or any specific time in the world. You can just you know, pick and choose from here, there and everywhere. And and just I wanted things also that was that were not just specifically to one particular minority group I, I wanted things that that really came from from everywhere because this is about an other it's not necessarily one specific um, you know one specific group which I, I was very keen to do but it's it was it was a very strange one to do because even if you were to just sort of sit and make it up you'd probably find that most of it was came true at some point and interestingly I mean looking at um, looking at how humans in real in real life have dealt with rabbits as a a vermin, you know, the way in which we've killed them using, you know, bacteriological warfare, everything shooting, nearly all the things that have been done against rabbits have been sort of done against humans at, at one point or another. And I think it's also, I mean, it's what's quite an interesting aside point is, of course, that the rabbits here are being you know, got rid of. And, and the whole thing is because they're not human. But of course, one of the first things that any um, discriminatory uh, group will do against another group of humans will be to, to dehumanize them, to make them non-human. And this is often done through language and all kinds of things. And um, we we had a, a politician recently in the in the UK who started referring to uh, um, immigrants as, you know, um, a plague. Uh, and, and And it's very it's very it seems to creep up rather insidiously, you know, this use of language. But it does have this massive dehumanising uh, um, effort, and sort of rabbits. Well, they're not humans, so you know how do you deal with it? But interesting. Another interesting point is that I I thought I put in as a little joke uh, that there was a, a maximum wage. Right. I I didn't know about the fact that anyone had actually actually said that you had to have a maximum wage to uh, a group of humans that you were you were employing. But that's a thing. That's a thing too. I found out afterwards that you, you very many groups actually imposed a maximum wage that you couldn't pay people more than a certain amount, you know, less they were to have wealth and then perhaps buy land or something or, or lawyers, even worse. So, um, yeah, I mean, the worst things that I could think of, you know, generally, I think you could probably find that um, humans have done to other humans at some Point, which is kind of depressing, really. But wow,
1: I'd never heard of that. Yeah, it was funny—the maximum wage, and there was a violation of it too. People who had violated it were were fined and jailed.
0: Yeah, yeah, put in put in prison.
1: Paying yeah. paying the rabbits too much.
0: Yeah, I think they're about the only two really heroic um, character, human characters, who maybe appear in the uh,
1: in the in the book, and they're in prison. There's also, you know, speaking of immigrants, you know, one of the derogatory comments or fears is them populating and taking over the population and and of mm. course the rabbits that's one of the fears that they're going to do a, a litter bomb is the is the term where they're just mm. they're, they're plotting to take over the uk by making too
0: too many babies yes weaponized overpopulation yeah i mean it's it's again that is one of you know one of the one of the big things that always comes out it's just sort of fear-mongering um, and I think that was, you know, the the main plank of the anti-rabbit, uh, you know, anti-rabbit party was uh, to say, you know, that they're they're just going to over overpopulate. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I I think I put in the mid '60s, uh, that's when you know when the the anthropomorphizing event happened, uh, because that was the um, <clears throat> the last time that the humans uh, doubled in population. Uh, so (laughs) that we were we were about three and a half billion in the mid 60s and now we're now we're seven billion now so I thought it'd be a nice little thing you know that that everyone is saying oh my god you know there's a million rabbits in over 50 years we've got to do something about this and of course humans have in fact in that time you know way out rabbited rabbits by a you know massive massive factor so yeah but I'm they, they, they breed, they, um, they burrow because, of course, they're gonna, they're, then they're going to start digging, aren't they? They're going to dig under people's foundations and house prices will go. And then the criminal element will come in. And, you know, what criminal element? There is no criminal element. And they have their own religion. And, you know, soon we'll be, they'll be our masters and we'll have to have their religion. And they're vegan. So then they're going to impose their veganness on us. And you can see how, how very easily if you want to demonize a group of um, animals, creatures, humans, ab rabbits, and whatever, how almost chillingly easy it is to do to create all this kind of nonsense. Um, So I really wanted to kind of, you know, push that home in a big kind of way.
1: Well, can you talk a little bit more about the rabbit way, you know, how they live and what they value? Because in addition to the things you talked about, veganism, I mean, you really built a whole... System. I kind of wondered mm-hmm. if that was you were expressing <laughs> values that I mean they're all lovely values. You know they hate yeah. one use items. They love yeah. things that last that don't have you know oh, built in no. obsolescence. Restorative justice. They, that's yeah, how they.
0: Oh, it's great! It's great. Yeah, the rabbits are brilliant. I mean, I love the rabbits, and I think that's one of the fun things you can have when you're uh, when you're write, writing science fiction or science fantasy or whatever it is. I'm writing is uh, you can you can try and improve things that you think are a little bit, you know, suspect and and clearly that the the human humankind could do with a lot of improving. And I thought, well, let's let's not just have the rabbits as a demonized other. Let's have them as like they're smarter, they're funnier. They have totally clued into their relationship with the biosphere as a whole. They embrace sustainability. They have all these kind of little sayings like, you know, only a fool buys twice. You know, why would you buy something more than once? It just doesn't make any sense. So they and and if something if there's technology that they don't feel they need or doesn't really advance themselves anymore, then they ju- they don't go with it. They just say, well, no, let's carry on using overhead projectors with a grease pencil. You know, they're, they're fine. You know, we don't need PowerPoint. They're just annoying. And and they also have uh, their, their way of governance. They don't really have any any big overall sort of leader. They just have a set of rules that you. Um, that kind of makes sense, you know, just why would you why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you be you know unpleasant to another rabbit? It just makes no sense at all um, and then they had this this rather kind of odd way of looking at humans, you know, where they say, well yeah, I mean, you humans had the bill of rights, you know, um, but we have a bill of responsibilities, uh, which of course change shifts the responsibility because if you have a bill of rights then the person whose rights have been infringed then has to try and stop their rights being in, infringed and everything like that. But I have this idea that if you have a bill of responsibilities, actually, then the onus is on the person who's potentially doing something wrong to actually be responsible for for other people. So the rabbits have all this kind of stuff. And it's it's rather nice uh, because they're not human. So you can kind of wire them differently. And, and they just um, have a much more a much more sort of i don't know they're just nicer more pleasant more sharing more caring and all those things about a litter bomb and you know overbreeding and vegan. that they don't they say well no we, we don't want to do any of that why would we it doesn't make any sense so um it, it was good fun to actually try and create this little you know this little sort of alternative humankind that i think would be just so much um so much nicer on us each other and the planet well maybe you
1: should Use this as a leaping off point to start your own religion, like like <laughs> Dianetics. Well, we know what Dianetics led to, so maybe the constant rabbit well, could lead to some kind of rabbity faith.
0: Well, who knows? I think you know. I'd need to sell a few more books and be a little well known, perhaps, before that happened. But, um, yeah, the, the rabbit way, as it's called, the rabbit way. But the, the problem is there'd always be someone, there'd always be a human, isn't it? I mean, generally, I think humans are you know, fairly decent. You know, I think 90%, maybe 85%, 90%. People are generally fairly decent. But it's that it's that 10% of um, sociopaths who really ruin it for the, the rest of us. I heard this comment, actually, only the other day, which was rather good, by John Ronson was giving a TED Talk, and he said that the capitalist system is pretty much the sociopathy made real that this is this is kind of molded on the way that sociopaths actually uh, think and work where it's like it's all about me and we're going to make money no matter what and we'll just we'll just sort of be ruthless and tread all over the small guy and you kind of think yeah that does sound so it might be true so it's um yeah it's that 10% of people who are just awful that really ruin it for everyone else which is a, a great shame great shame The debate
1: about rights and responsibilities, I think, is distilled perfectly in, I don't know if it's happening in the UK, but I'm sure you've heard in the United States, there are people who are going around not wearing their mask and saying, well, it's my right not to. And then people saying, but it's your responsibility to wear it because we live in a society and you're risking other people's lives. You can do whatever the hell you want with your health, but you can't hurt other people. So it's, it's distilled right there.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, th- I think I think people perhaps, yeah, you can get a little selfish. And I think this all trickles down a lot from leadership. You know, we, we have a bit of a right wing leadership at the moment. It's just shifted even further to the right where it's decided it's just, just in the last week that it's going to ignore international law, which is, you know, kind of worrying, really, because then you're slipping from, you know, into kind of, I don't know, nationalism, really. and And I think yeah, I mean, it, it really needs leadership to, to say to people, no, you have to be responsible. I mean, the way we do it, we, I always wear a mask out in town. And my feeling is, it's again, someone else put this really well, is that I'm wearing a mask for your protection, right? What are you doing for me? And you think, yeah, I think that's the right way of, of looking at it. Because it, it, the mask may not stop you getting it, but it will stop you spreading it to someone else. So it is absolutely a, a responsibility. And anyone who doesn't wear it and claims they have the right not to, I think is is really someone who, who's decided that they don't live in a society at all. They just live in their own little, I don't know, dictatorship of one. I, I don't normally
1: uh, quote reviews on Amazon, but I thought it, this one was yeah. kind of funny. And... It sort of speaks to the idea of you're telling an allegory and you've chosen rabbits. They're a symbol. But anyway, this review says, um, first of all, the reviews were like glowing, you know, basically. So that's why I also felt like, oh, I could just pull one out. And this one isn't not glowing. It gives the book four stars and it starts off with an apology. First off, uh, a little apology to Mr. Ford for the loss of one star. I always love your books, but my enjoyment of this one was less than usual because of the rabbits. And then I felt the same way about Watership Down. And then also they didn't really care much for Beatrix Potter. And then they mm. go, they say, "Okay, having got that out of the way, the rest of the book was just great." <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. Like, so your book is bringing. The rabbit haters out of the out of the woodwork, like they're actually literally are people who who are uh, critical or just uncomfortable with rabbits, I guess. So I just wondered if you have found yourself having to to justify the choice of rabbits, or who really cares? Because it's kind of funny anyway.
0: No, that's the first time I've heard anyone have a problem with the the use of rabbits. They're just, again, and it's going back to what I was saying earlier, they're just the perfect animal to choose because of that strange, twisted relationship we've uh, we've had with them for so many years. You know, we love them and, uh, you know, we love them, we love them. And then all of a sudden when they're eating crops or whatever, we hate them and have to stamp them out, literally. Not really, no, i don't don't think I have that. but it's it's nice that it's nice that people apologize you for not giving me a full five stars, you know, but that's that's very polite, you see, isn't it? Very polite, very polite. Yeah.
1: So let me ask you that question that uh, we sort of touched on before. Is it hard to be both funny and serious? I mean, when you're talking about such serious things like, you know, racism and even, genocide, because that's really, uh, you know, comes up in the book as well. There's a lot of humor in the book, but how do you grapple with those things without ever
0: really making light of what is serious? Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is, I think, probably the biggest problem I had with the book is that trivializing trivializing genuine issues uh, that uh, that people have. Um, I do not have these issues. You know, I have never been discriminated against. I have not been discriminated against once, you know, not in my entire life. I'm like 59 now, you know, and there's a very good reason for that. You know, I, I was sort of, you know, I had privilege defaulted to me uh, at birth, you know, or I won, I won the lottery ticket without actually Without actually buying a ticket, so it was it was something that I was very conscious about. You know, how can you write about this kind of stuff when you you know you you've you've never been anywhere near there? And I said, well, you know, I I think I've I, I'm speaking from the other side, if you like. You know, not someone who's actually actively gone out there uh, and caused trouble, but certainly someone who unthinkingly perhaps has allowed this to continue. But, yeah, it's a problem about trivialising um, some very serious subjects. In allegory, you can do this, I think. And in tr- sort of comedy allows you to t- tackle very difficult subjects with a, with a lot of comedy. And sometimes I think it's absolutely vital to have this engine, this allegorical sort of tragic comedy element to actually uh, to deal with things humans are very odd creatures they mix you know the very funny with the very with they can be exceptionally cruel and very funny, you know sometimes you know almost at the same time so i i in the end i thought well i want to i want to write this book i want to tell this story i think it's important but i want to do it in a way that isn't dry and angry and and sort of just impossible you know, to read. I didn't want it to be just a really, really unpleasant uh, read. I wanted it to. Do, I wanted it to be funny. And there are parts of it. I mean, which you very kindly say that I, yeah, I do think are really very funny indeed. Uh, and then they're followed, you know, almost instantly by something, you know, quite unpleasant happening. And I was talking to this to a friend of mine, and I said, well, think of a, think of a, you know, something that everyone has seen or watched or, or something like that. That's um, that is that has that tragic comedy elements. And I said, well, um, well, what about Mash on the telly? And I go, and I'm going, oh yeah, that's true. Because it, essentially, you know, MASH, as you all know, I mean, it all know and loved if you you know, seen it. Yeah, and I'm sure absolutely,
1: everyone's, of course, yeah.
0: everyone's seen it. Uh, you know, this is set during a war, you know, during the Korean War. And it's essentially a sort of work workplace comedy, really, isn't it? Because there are all these people who work together. And it's all the banter. And it's tremendously funny. I mean, really laugh out loud funny. But then all of a sudden, over the tannoy, uh, radar says incoming and and then you 're inside the uh inside the operating theater and it 's suddenly very serious you know and this is people are dying, and people are here. this is a waste of life, this is a war. what are we doing here? All these questions that you want to ask about conflict are all distilled, and then once you 're out of the theater bang you 're back into the comedy again, and you can laugh and you can be relieved yet in the way it's presented together, there is something that you take home from it in a big way, and I think that's um, that's that's really important too. Uh, to give you another example, did you ever see a film called District Nine? Oh yeah, absolutely, set, sure. Joe Bug, uh, gr- one of the best science fiction films ever. I just love that movie, and and I think there are kind of elements that 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 came across from that to to the Constant Rabbit. And that is very funny. I mean, the, the, the Vickers van der Merwe, you know, the central character in District 9 starts off as this actually figure of fun character, you know, real, absolutely kind of total loser. And, and he's a very funny character. And the, and the film has these elements of comedy that I, I really enjoy. Um, but without them, the, the film, I think, would be so much less because humans are funny. And the biggest problem I have with literary books, this is my big, I, I, I okay, I admit here, I, I'm not a big fan of literary books. And, but the one reason I don't, I really don't like them is because they're never funny. And if you write a book that's about humans, and there's no comedy in it at all, there's nothing funny in it at all, then it's not about humans. Because humans have this sense of comedy that runs through them they have this dark comedy they have older quips quips they have way of ways of using uh, language which is which is amusing and it keeps us going it keeps us you know in, in sort of inflated in times in dark times and i and i just i i think it's just dry and i think it's unrealistic but people people think that if you're if you're being funny right you're not being serious and i think that's completely
1: wrong completely utterly wrong but you do love literature. I mean, The Air Affair and all those <laughs> books. So many of your books are about literature, you know, in a satirical way.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, but not, the, not the unfunny ones. You know, I mean, uh, uh, take um, uh, Jane Austen. You know, uh, sense, sensibility, Pride and Prejudice. These are funny books. I mean, these are funny books. Even Jane Eyre is actually really quite funny. There is the comedy in it. You know, the Brontës obviously had a great family life. They must have had very, uh, very uh, funny parents, and they they had a sense of humour, and that that comes across. In, in the books, when when a book has no humour in it, then I do say, no, this is like I don't know, like Pamela, or you know, parts of um, Boby Dick. You know, you know, a little bit lacking in humour, and that's when I think they come across as a little bit dull, to be honest. The, I think the best literature has this this little charm that bubbles underneath the surface, that is charm, that is sparkle, that is a sense of humour, not necessarily laugh out loud, you know, one-liners, but a, just a sense of humanness the good part of being human the, the, the funny part of being human the charming part the forgiving part you know absolutely absolutely I mean it's funny I was thinking uh, you know
1: from uh, Mary Poppins a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down so yeah I mean I'm, I was I was laughing out loud my husband was looking at me funny as I was yeah reading. <laughs> Then also, he's reading a book called Afro-Pessimism, and it's about racism. And so, on the other hand, I could also share with him parts of the book that aligned with that as well. So mm. it's kind of an interesting, interesting how flexible the book is. Yeah. I was going to ask you, on your amazing website, which is just, I mean, has so much on it, uh, you have a section called Location Scout, and you talk about the real locations where the action of many of your, maybe all your books, and there's also the constant rabbit is there. Uh, they, you know, the real places like ross on Y, probably not saying that right, and Herefordshire and the May Hill, where mm-hmm. one of the massive rabbit colonies is located. And it's an interesting juxtaposition because your books are always, or at least very often set in alternative worlds, and yet you use these real geographic locations. It's, it's sort of an interesting way to ground remind everyone that there's maybe real stuff going on in the books.
0: I mean, I think the thing about writing, um, writing a sort of, you know, these imagined worlds is that they have to be kind of recognizable. You know, it's like, you know, satire is a great way of making a, a very bizarre world instantly recognizable because although perhaps you don't recognize the situations or the creatures in it or the way in which the you know the the plot's working or whatever you can say ah no i understand about you know people being in authority and like knowing nothing you know and bossing around people who clearly know a lot more than they do you know and and one of the mainstays of comedy that's come down from you know ancient greece so i think it's important to make things if you make things recognizable then people identify with them and for me part of it is like saying okay this is a real place these are the places i based based it on you know you could go and look if you wanted to uh, but also i think for me it really helps me get get an idea of the geography of of the place uh, and also when i go for little location scouts and i start looking around and seeing how um, how the action could take place i often Bump into something, and I go, "Oh, that could be." Yeah, I'd like to use that. How could I use that? And then, and then this idea pops up from nowhere, and all of a sudden, that actually then creates a little subplot on its own uh, that I wouldn't have got without actually visiting the location for real. So sometimes it works in reverse. Uh, with another book I did called um, Early Riser a few few years back, I went on I went on to this location, and a major part of the of the sort of architecture of that world suddenly just popped into my head, almost fully formed. And it was got, oh my God, I, that is such a good morning I spent just wandering around um, this little village uh, about 10 miles from us. So it's it, it works both ways. Um, you know, I do like to get out there. I do like to sort of muck around, have a look, you know, you see what's there. And if there are characters there, if there's little detail, cause you know, with writing, one of the hardest things to write about in writing is random detail, you know, describing a, a, a house, Um, with random detail is actually quite tricky to do because obviously it's random. So how do you think it up? But so if you just go out to your local town and look at a house and you go, Oh, okay, that works. You know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a a mannequin's leg in the window, you know, random (laughs) detail. And that's true. That's true. And then you describe that and you add a few little details like that. And that randomness suddenly makes the world seem so much more real and it's it's a kind of weird thing to do but oh i don't know i've been doing it for a while now and you just accidentally sort of stumble across all these little shortcuts that you can you can do if you want to you know have a character i often will look at randomly on the internet to find what a character looks like and i'll just print it off and just stick it on my wall and i go right that's that's what um Either that's what Pippa looks like, or or that's what Peter looks like, and and you know it, it really helps. I mean, it really does, it really does.
1: Last question, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe I don't know if it's easy or hard to answer. Well, like you said, you have nine hundred or so questions on your website. That was te- you mm-hmm. stopped doing that like ten years ago. There's probably at least a thousand more questions that people have asked you over the years. So, what has no one ever asked you? that I can ask you so that I can say, we broke totally new ground on oh, new books and science fiction.
0: Oh my God, I have to, I have to really uh, think. No, it's like one of those random, I don't know, it's, it, but you have to be a sort of random sort of left field. It's question. like a
1: mannequin out of a window leg.
0: Yeah. Leg, is, I mean, a, a leg out of a, a window. It was yeah. a, a mannequin's leg in someone's right. window. That is a thing. If you drive into Hereford, it's on your right. You can see it. It's probably, in, it's probably on Google Earth, actually. I I don't know really. I mean, the, I I would have thought there are hundreds of questions that I have not been asked because often when I'm when I'm writing, you know, and I'll write I'll write the book and I'll put in this all this tiny little sort of weird bits of detail that are, you know, that are nothing really to do with anything um, in the book, but I just put it in there because I it's a little personal in joke, and I think sometimes one of the one of the questions I really like answering is when someone says look I, I read that in your book and um you know do you do you like seeing the movie you know the court jester danny Kay's the court jester you know that was made in 1955 no one's heard of it now but do you, did you watch that film a lot when you were a kid and i went Oh yes I did. And they go, "Oh I did too. It's a most amazing film." And I go, "Yeah, and it's 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 great." And I managed to there are parts of The Court Jester, you know, this this comedy from the 50s that I managed to drag into the uh to into the book. And I think I think when people ask me questions about that, were you thinking of this? And and all of a sudden, there's this little shared connection between reader and writer that, that is kind of weirdly bonding in a strange way. When I notice details in books I'm reading and I'm going, oh, yeah, I know that. I know exactly where that film is from and I know exactly why you've done that. You like that movie. I like that movie. I like you as an author. We are together. I like this this book and it's that kind of subtle dark art of that connection between between reader and writer that that i kind of you know enjoy so i i suppose that that's an answer to whatever the question was that that the answer is an answer to <laughs> perfect <laughs> what a what a we couldn't end on
1: a better note <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Uh, I've been speaking with Jasper Ford, the author of The Constant Rabbit, which was published in the United States by Viking in September. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: No, my pleasure. Thank you. It's been really, really great having a chat.
1: Thanks for joining us on New Books and Science Fiction. Consider subscribing and leaving a review to show your support. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show. And the founder and editor of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, gets the show on the air with the help from co-editor Leanne Wilson. Stay well, healthy, and safe. If you're in the United States, don't forget to register to vote and then vote, but only once, please. Bye for now.